Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. So I have a confession to make. I missed a huge birthday. And by that I mean my last podcast landed directly on this very important birthday, and I did not acknowledge it at all. I was horrified when I realized. You want to know when I realized my oopsie? Google's homepage animation. I missed the Hubble Telescope's 27th birthday. It was on April 24th when I released my last podcast, so despite the fact that some very dear people voiced their opinions on what I should do next, I'm going to take the time I should have taken before, and I'm going to talk about our good friend, the Hubble Space Telescope. I'll have to be careful here because last episode I talked about Edwin Hubble, the astronomer who wrote that paper on redshift distance relations, and this is an inanimate object that's named after him. Maybe I can just call it Hubble T. I guess it doesn't really waste that much time just to say Hubble Telescope, but (laughs) I'm not going to be talking about Hubble the Astronomer anyway, because the only association he has with the Hubble T is that it's named after him. He was dead before they even started planning Hubble T, which zoomed on up past the atmosphere to orbit Earth and photograph space two whole years before I was born. (laughs) But before we talk about Hubble T in specifics, I want to take a moment to talk about telescopes. So the whole premise of this podcast for me is to finally do some research into astronomical concepts that I'm curious about. It's also a little bit of me researching things I kind of sort of know about, but wouldn't be able to describe to someone who starts questioning me in detail. So I'm going to start with what a telescope is. (laughs) Galileo wasn't the first person to make a telescope. He was the first person to make astronomical observations with one, but while he made his telescope in 1609, the Dutch eyeglass maker Hans Lippershey made one in 1608, when he accidentally looked through two different eyeglass lenses that he'd held always apart. He thought it had military applications. The telescopes that Lippershey and Galileo both made were a type of telescope that we now call a refracting telescope. These telescopes use a series of lenses to make faraway things look big. If you go digging into the history of telescopes, and I always recommend you go digging into the history of anything, you'll probably see telescopes described in terms of their length and the diameter of their objective lens. The objective lens is going to be the big one that's gathering the light from the stars. A fun, cute fact I discovered trying to figure out the anatomy of telescopes, but you want to be careful when telescope shopping. It actually doesn't matter how far away you can see with a telescope, though that may be what shitty telescopes advertise. What actually matters is how well a telescope gathers light and how detailed an image it'll give you. The three kinds of telescope out there all have their pros and cons. I found that the Naperville Astronomy Association's website had a really good comparison of the three types. That source is in the show notes if you want to look at a side-by-side kind of comparison. So a refraction telescope uses convex lenses to focus a far-off, very dim image. 
Convex is the uh, bulging out kind of lens. The second type of telescope is a reflector telescope, which reflects light rays off the concave surface of a parabolic mirror. Concave is the one that caves in. That's how I remember the different kinds of lenses. While refraction telescopes are a straight line from the objective lens to the eyepiece, reflector telescopes have a lens that's coming out of the side of the telescope rather than directly along the barrel of the telescope. They're interesting because they don't have any glass for light to pass through, so all the colors come to the same focal point. That isn't the case with refractor telescopes. Different colors of light have different degrees of refraction, and passing them through glass messes with the image that you're going to get. You'll get a higher contrast image with reflector telescopes, but you get less color distortion with refraction telescopes. The final kind of telescope is a Cassegrain, or a catadiopteric telescope, and it uses lenses and mirrors in combination. Some of these are actually computerized these days, probably because the images are the worst out of the three kinds of telescope available. It is the smallest kind, though, which makes it pretty portable. Telescopes have been around since the beginning of the 17th century, and all they've really done is get better as people improved on the design. Observatories started popping up in Europe, and the lenses on these telescopes got bigger and bigger to capture more light. To be clear, these were refraction telescopes. The bases for the telescopes had to become more stable to hold up these huge tubes, and the drive mechanism for moving the barrel of the telescope became pretty precise so that people didn't have to haul the huge body of a telescope around with their arms and their backs and all that stuff. All this time, people were basically just using enhanced naked-eye observations of celestial bodies. They had to draw anything that they saw by hand, too. These drawings are incredibly detailed, and often the descriptions of particular phenomena were extremely detailed as well, but there was no real objective image of what astronomers saw when they looked through their telescopes. There were often conflicting descriptions of what a celestial body or a particular celestial event had looked like, since it was based on a subjective description. I want to take a moment to brag here and say that my mom went to college and got her master's degree in liberal arts, but she focused on art history, primarily photography. My research into space photography gave me a cool four minutes of discussing old photography techniques with her as she was running out the door to take a big walk with her friends. She set me straight, too, on how to pronounce this particular type of photography that I'm going to talk about, the first kind to gain any kind of popularity, daguerreotypes. Louis-Jacques Mond Daguerre. <laughs> oh, this French. He was the inventor, along with Joseph Nicephore Nipis. Ooh, that French. Though Nipis died before the project was complete, so Daguerre got to name it after himself. There are a lot of steps to both taking a picture and developing a photograph in a traditional chemical bath sense, and I don't really want to get into that on this space podcast, but the book that I read it all in is called Starlight Detectives by Alan Hirschfeld, and it goes into way more detail about the process of developing, well, taking and then developing a daguerreotype. All you really need to know is that daguerreotypes were made by treating silver-plated copper so that it would become light-sensitive. You would expose this plate in a camera, either for a few seconds or a few hours, depending on what you were photographing and the lighting conditions, and then you would develop the picture. What you got was a direct positive image, meaning that the stuff you'd seen that was dark was dark, and the stuff that you saw that was light was light, but the image was reversed right to left. 
You also couldn't get any kind of copy out of the daguerreotype unless you took a photo of the actual daguerreotype itself, which was already a bad idea because it was on a shiny surface that made it very difficult to photograph. The other option out there for photographs was a callotype. This was a photograph that was printed on matte finished paper and created a negative. So the things that you saw that were dark were light, and the light things were dark. The image wasn't reversed right to left the way a daguerreotype was, though, and you could make any number of contact prints from a single negative calotype. You did have to expose the paper for longer than you would a daguerreotype's plate, though, and the person who invented the calotype, William Talbot, protected his patent on it, so the public didn't really want to use this technique because they would have had to pay a lot of money for it. People took photographs mostly for artsy reasons, but a few very enterprising astronomers tried to get daguerreotypes of celestial objects. The moon was a really popular subject. This is when you'd run into serious issues of technological, meteorological, or act of God failure. <laughs> All photographs needed to be exposed to the object of the photograph for a certain amount of time, so the light could make a print on the material. When the light source was dim, you had to expose the plate for longer. When the light source was dim and also far away, you were pretty fucked. <laughs> you had to correct for the rotation of the Earth, any anomalies in your telescope's drive mechanism that might bump it, dirty glass in your telescope, weather conditions. We got some moon daguerreotypes and some photos of the bright star Vega out of this era in celestial photography, but that was more in spite of the available photographic technology than because of it. There was an idea to replace the calotype's paper with glass, which would get a daguerreotype level of detail with the calotype's reproducibility, and the whole process of that was actually really cool. You would have to chemically treat the glass with photosensitive materials, and you needed another material that was both translucent and that would get the photosensitive chemicals to stick to the glass. And people experimented with a whole bunch of junk, including snail slime and egg albumin, which is the white stuff in eggs. A very, very nice man named Frederick Scott Archer figured out a technique with something called collodion, though. Collodion was being used as a flexible cover for wounds at the time, but Archer applied it to photography, and he didn't patent the technique, so it really took off. Here's the hilarious downside to collodion photography, though. Before you took a photo you had to dunk the plate in a silver nitrate bath, and then you had to expose the plate while it was still wet, and then you had to develop it also while it was still wet. Unsurprisingly, it was called wet collodion photography, and people who did this photography technique had to be obsessed, because if you went anywhere to take pictures, you needed to basically carry a portable darkroom um, and a, like a canvas sink and all these chemicals with you and all these plates as well and silver nitrate's not great for you. It, it was incredible, the list of things that you needed. People did it, though. People took pictures of the moon, planets, and stars. Wet collodion photography did raise an issue with photographing comets or nebulae, though. Their light was spread out over a patch of the sky, and that made it hard to capture the light no matter how much you zoomed in on it. In the 1880s, the dry collodion process took over, and what a relief that probably was for all of these poor people carrying tents and chemicals and glass plates everywhere. The downside to the dry collodion process was it needed an even longer exposure time. 
Still, the American astronomer Henry Draper and his awesome lab assistant wife Mary Anna Palmer Draper used dry plates to take some exposures of the Orion Nebula. They took a 51-minute exposure in 1880 and went up to 137 minutes in 1882. It arose that the camera was going to end up being essential for imaging nebulae. It was the only way to get a clear read on what some nebulae, like the Andromeda Nebula, looked like, for one. The human eye just was not sensitive enough to pick up a lot of these gaseous images. I include all of this history to make the point that it was incredibly, unbelievably difficult to photograph space. All the way up into the 20th century, too. There were several attempts to construct photographic charts of the heavens from pole to pole, and oh my gosh. (laughs) The first one attempted began in 1887 and was still ongoing until 1964. That's the Carte du Ciel project, if you're curious. Nuns in the 1920s were helping to map star positions so they could piece these 6-inch by 6-inch photographs of the sky together into a big chart. Apart from the issues of telescopes needing to adjust for the movement of the Earth in order to photograph celestial objects, problems also arose from dirty lenses and instrumental issues. And then there was the weather problem, since you can't predict what will happen with clouds and rain and all of that. And finally, if all the factors aligned just right, these photographers were still shooting photographs through one massive, immovable exterior lens, the Earth's atmosphere. If you'll recall from the second episode of this podcast, the Ptolemaic cosmological model of our universe included air as distinct from ether. The layers of the Ptolemaic spheres went earth, water, air, fire, then ether. You could argue that this is the beginning of the realization that we lived within an atmosphere that could sustain life that was separate from where the stars were. The problem with this atmosphere is an issue that NASA astronomer Nancy Roman likens to looking through an old stained glass window. In an interview conducted as part of Hubble's 25th birthday, since Roman was one of the primary people who brought the Hubble Space Telescope to fruition, she explains that astronomers wanted to get a telescope above the atmosphere because, like a stained glass window, you can only see certain colors through the atmosphere. It's also dusty or dirty, and the shape of the glass distorts what you can see, or in this case, the shape of the atmosphere. The way astronomers deal with it these days is by building observatories on top of very tall mountains where there is less atmosphere to worry about, but the Hubble Space Telescope takes images that are not through this big, dirty, stained glass window surrounding Earth, since the Hubble Space Telescope is orbiting us. Rocket propulsion was first proposed by Hermann Oberth, an Austro-Hungarian physicist, and it was this initial suggestion that started off a whole race to the moon and all of that, but it also brought up the concept of satellites. I gotta take a moment here, and it won't be my last, because NASA has two pages on satellites, and they're broken up by age group. They've got one for K through fourth grade crowd, and one through fifth through eighth grade crowd, and I find it extremely delightful. (laughs) Both articles say basically the same thing, though. Satellites are objects that move around a larger object. Earth is a natural satellite because it moves around the sun, and the moon is a natural satellite because it moves around the earth. But usually people use the word satellite to refer to man-made satellites, which are sent up for various reasons. Some photograph the planet, like Google Maps satellites. Some are used for communications, sending TV signals and phone calls. A group of more than 20 satellites make up our GPS system. 
Sputnik was the first satellite to make it up into orbit, and it was sent up by the Soviet Union in 1957. It's about the size of a basketball, while also weighing 183 pounds, (laughs) which is awesome and dense. (laughs) Satellites are launched into space on rockets, and they orbit when their speed is balanced by the pull of Earth's gravity, though the distances from Earth, the patterns of the orbit, and the speeds all vary depending on the satellite. Geostationary satellites travel west to east over the equator, and they move in the same direction and at the same rate as Earth, so they appear to be in the same location if you're looking up and satellite spotting. Polar orbiting satellites travel north to south, which allows them to scan the Earth along its longitude lines. Satellites have at least two parts in common, no matter what kind of satellite they are. They have an antenna to send and receive information, and a power source, which is usually a solar panel or a battery. In Hubble T's case, there are also a shitload of sensors to help guide its optics into place so it can take clearer pictures of distant objects. Imagine those um, old-timey cameras. They're actually still used today, so I don't know why I'm saying that they're old-timey. But um, where you have a hand on the body of the camera and your finger on the shutter and all that, and your free hand is twisting the barrel of the lens. You're also probably yelling at your photo subjects to work it. That lens twisting is trying to bring an object into focus, and the Hubble needs a ton of sensors to get that kind of refinement. The Hubble T is solar-powered, and it works in infrared and ultraviolet frequencies, which helps to penetrate the dust clouds that make up nebulae, so scientists can see what objects are in those clouds. The Hubble T is a huge refraction telescope, with an 8-foot primary mirror, a secondary mirror that shoots the image through a tiny hole in this primary mirror, And all this complicated bouncing rays of light shit with the mirrors has a purpose. It increases the telescope's focal length. Now the camera brand Nikon's website tells me that a longer focal length means that the angle of view is narrowed and the subject of the photo appears larger, which makes sense considering what Hubble T's mission is. It wants to be able to look very far in a very small direction and take a photo that is enhanced. The American astronomer Lyman Spitzer first conceived of the idea of a large orbiting telescope that could take pictures of deep space and nebulae and other amazing things in 1949, a decade before any satellites were actually launched. NASA launched four satellites, all of them named Orbiting Astronomical Observatory, between 1966 and 1972. This OAO program was developed to increase awareness in the scientific community of the benefits of orbiting telescopes, because you always have to convince scientists that a new idea is a good idea. (laughs) OAO-1 had a battery overheat within two days of its launch. OAO-2 made it for four years up in space and used UV telescopes and television cameras to gather information about our solar system and beyond. OAO-B fell back to Earth without achieving orbit. OAO-3 was renamed Copernicus after it launched, and was created with the Science and Engineering Research Council of the United Kingdom. It had a UV telescope like OAO-2, but it also had an X-ray astronomy experiment for the Mullard Space Science Laboratory of University College London. OAO-3, aka Copernicus, lasted until 1981 up in space. Some satellites that also made it up to space were spy satellites, sent up during the Cold War by both the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They were powerful telescopes, but they were aimed at Earth, monitoring activity in Russia and America. 
The first American satellite was top secret, codenamed Kennan, and launched by the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office in 1976. The design for Kennan was modified to become the Hubble Space Telescope when NASA put the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama in charge of designing, developing, and constructing what at the time was called the Large Space Telescope in 1978. The Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland led the development of scientific instruments and ground control technology for this project. So Marshall was building the telescope, Goddard was dealing with ground control technologies. The European Space Agency came in pretty early on to help furnish the solar arrays, and they contributed a faint object camera to the large space telescope. Work began on the mirrors and reflectors needed for the telescope itself pretty early on, too. Lens making takes a really, really long time if you're going to do it right. It has to send light back at just the right angle to hit a very particular focus. NASA also had to work with incredibly new technology, digital film. The CCD cameras that they were looking at to put in their space telescope were of interest to the TV industry at the time, but they didn't have any sensitivity to ultraviolet light. Scientists on the Large Space Telescope program decided to coat them with an organic compound that would make them sensitive to the UV spectrum, but in that interview that I mentioned earlier with Nancy Roman, she says that sending them up on the Hubble T was a proof of concept, actually, so it was one badass scientific success. <laughs> In 1983, the Large Space Telescope was named the Hubble Space Telescope after Edwin Hubble, and the whole telescope was assembled and ready for launch by February 15, 1985. But then, on January 28, 1986, the NASA Space Shuttle Orbiter named Challenger disintegrated 73 seconds after liftoff. Seven astronauts died. Hubble's launch was delayed, and engineers tested and evaluated it extensively until finally, on April 24th, 1990, that birthday I didn't know about until day of, Hubble T was launched into orbit from the Space Shuttle Discovery. The first image came in May 20th. When scientists actually analyzed the images, though, they realized that Hubble had some myopia, just like me. There was distortion in that eight-foot primary mirror, and it was causing blurred pictures. Astronauts didn't have a chance to do maintenance until December of 1993, but they fixed that blurry vision pretty quick when they did. There have been some servicing missions since Hubble T's first pictures, mostly to update technology and replace failed or failing spacecraft components. Hubble T was projected to last 15 years up in space, but it's lasted 27 so far. There won't be any more maintenance trips, though, so um, I'm going to keep an eye out for when things start to fail. The last maintenance mission was in 2009, and it seems to be going strong, but who knows? <laughs> well, I hope the scientists know, but I don't know. <laughs> On one of the many websites dedicated to educating the public about the Hubble Space Telescope, I found a pretty cute reality versus fiction list. I want to dive really quick into a little Mythbusters segment about Hubble T just to get some really neat facts out of the way. So, myth. The Hubble Space Telescope is a manned satellite, with astronauts living and conducting research on it as it orbits Earth. Reality? The telescope is unmanned and controlled from Earth. Astronomers request observation time on the telescope and conduct their research on Earth. A little bonus to this, when the European Space Agency joined the Hubble T project in September of 1975, they agreed to provide 15% of project funding in exchange for at least 15% telescope time given to the European astronomers. American and European astronomers can both use the Hubble telescope. 
I kind of wonder if there's like a big Google calendar of scheduling times or a doodle poll or something. Oh, well. Another <laughs> myth. The Hubble Space Telescope can only observe visible space objects. Reality? The Hubble Telescope can collect more light so the astronomers can see objects more clearly, but the telescope can also detect light that is invisible to the human eye, such as infrared and ultraviolet light. I'm going to be talking about infrared and ultraviolet and the whole light spectrum and how it relates to space at some point because spectroscopy is incredibly interesting to me. But, you know, cool. Next. Myth. The Hubble Space Telescope can take pictures of anything. Reality. The telescope cannot take pictures of everything in space. For example, pointing it near the sun or other very bright objects, such as Earth, could damage the instruments. On one occasion, the telescope snapped pictures of the moon, but this took much effort, since the moon is very bright and appears to move through the sky more rapidly than other, more distant objects. The Hubble Space Telescope has also never taken pictures of Mercury because it is too close to the sun. Man, I gotta get on a podcast about the planets eventually. (laughs) Okay, one last fun Hubble Space Telescope fact. Every 95 minutes, Hubble T makes a complete orbit of Earth. That means it's moving about 17,000 miles an hour, fast enough to travel across the United States in 10 minutes, which would make road trips so much easier. (laughs) So the Hubble T is up there. People have probably all seen at least one photo of space taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. If you visit my blog at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com, The profile picture is actually a Hubble T photo, though one that I stuck some stupid words on to amuse myself. I'll link to a gallery of Hubble T images in the blog post if you want to check any more of them out. It's taken pictures of the planets in our solar system and beyond, stars being born and dying, comets, including some comet pieces crashing into Jupiter, new satellites around Pluto, black holes, galaxies trillions of miles away, The galaxies thing is actually pretty amazing because it's helped us understand how planets and galaxies form. Hubble T's also help scientists estimate how old the universe is. To go back to the black holes Hubble has photographed, it not only found black holes, it also observed supermassive black holes. Like the Muse song. In 1990, right after it had been set up, Hubble T took a picture of a 30,000 light year long jet coming out of a galaxy. Like a like a fountain, you know? Scientists determined that these jets, which give off a ton of radio light, are probably coming from supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies. Hubble T can also take photographs at a high enough resolution that in 1994, when astronomers looked into spectroscopic pictures of the gas that was at the center of an elliptical galaxy, they found that it was circling a small but massive object. Oxymoron, right? Small but massive? Not true when you're talking about supermassive black holes. They're in the majority of all normal galaxies, it turns out, and observing their presence and influence on galaxies shows how these galaxies are evolving over time. 
As Hubble T was measuring stellar explosions, or supernovae, it recorded detailed information about how supernovae used to explode versus how they do it nowadays. This shift, which happened about halfway into the universe's history, was scientifically confusing, but it ultimately supports the theory of the existence of dark energy, which causes an acceleration in the expansion of the universe, if you'll recall from the last episode. NASA is actually building another space telescope right now, and it's scheduled for launch in 2018. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope, and it'll be bigger than Hubble T, but it won't orbit Earth like Hubble T does. It's going to orbit the sun in a spot called the Lagrange point. And I'm sure there's some mad cool math done to figure out what that is, but I don't want to talk about that. What the Lagrange point is, is the solution to the three-body problem. A guy named Liu Xuxian wrote a sci-fi book called The Three-Body Problem that won the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2015, and it's based very, very loosely on solving the problem that Joseph Louis Lagrange solved in the 18th century. The question is, is there any stable configuration in which three bodies could orbit each other, yet stay in the same position relative to each other? There are actually five solutions to this problem, and they're called the five Lagrange points after this mathematical badass who discovered them. The James Webb Telescope will be orbiting at L2, where a few other satellites have been, including our good friend the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe. If you want to try and imagine where that is, it's in a straight line from the Sun to the Earth to this point. So the Webb Telescope is going to be further away from the Sun than the Earth is. This should mean that it will fall behind Earth's orbit, since it has a further distance to travel around the Sun. But because it's at the L2 point, the gravitational force of both the Sun and the Earth will ensure that the Webb Telescope keeps up with the Earth. It's also going to be orbiting around the L2 point itself, which is awesome because that orbit will keep the Webb Telescope from going into the shadow of the Earth or the Moon. I mentioned earlier how the Hubble orbits the Earth really fast, but its orbit takes it into the Earth's shadow every 90 minutes. The Webb Telescope is going to have an unimpeded view of space, so science can happen 24-7. The Webb Telescope will also be able to see different kinds of light than Hubble T can, and it'll use its more sensitive sensors to resolve smaller features on the planets, as well as viewing distant celestial objects in specific colors of light. So the major missions for the Webb Telescope will be to look at star birth and to develop solar system science. All right, so what did we learn today? Three kinds of telescope, reflector, refractor, and cassegrain. Daguerreotypes and calotypes and wet plate collodion photographs and dry plate collodion photographs. Taking photos of space is incredibly hard, especially through the atmosphere. Get it above that atmosphere, though, and it can get amazing, especially if you work in infrared and ultraviolet light. A bunch of satellites made it up before Hubble T did and paved the way for this telescope and its observations. The Hubble T is 27 years old and it's going strong. And then there's the James Webb Space Telescope going up in 2018, which will be incredible. From here, I did get a request for hinges from my lovely friend Kate on that last episode request, but I just had to go for Hubble this week. I can see how people might want to look into probes and satellites now, maybe the planets, maybe spectroscopy, maybe black holes. I'm leaning towards hinges because I am easily swayed by other people's interests, but you can let me know through an ask on the website what you'd be curious about. I'm getting more texts and Facebook messages about it, but I promise I'll take Tumblr questions, too, if you don't know me personally. 
You can also tweet at me at HD in the Void. I'll answer that as well. I'll get around to all of it eventually. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it busts my buttons. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to bust your buttons, too. Tune in on May 22nd for whatever I end up researching next. As always, sources, music credits, a vocab list, and the script are available at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. And I highly recommend checking out the online Hubble resources that I put up there. The format on the 25th anniversary website is incredibly well done, and this is coming from someone who really appreciates a good website design. Also, did you know that Hubble has its own YouTube channel? I gotta go. I could go on and on about how wonderful all this open astronomical knowledge is. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off.